Hello, and welcome once again to the Necromancers of the Northwest Gaming Podcast. This week has been all about damsels on our website, those bosom beauties who languish at the top of towers and serve as bait for heroes across the land. While helpless damsels have been considered a bit of a sexist anachronism since at least the 80s, and it's widely accepted that women of the realms are the equal of males in every way, shape, and form, we're necromancers, so we obviously don't care about political correctness. As a result, today is all about the damsel in distress, and by all, I mean some of it. We'll get there later. In the meantime, it's time for a little segment we like to call Optimal Options. We've all seen the figurines of wondrous power lurking in the wondrous item section at the back of the core rulebook. Most likely, you've considered buying one once or twice, daydreaming about how cool and flavorful they are. Even more likely, you never have bought one, always remembering that they're rather expensive considering the limited amount of time you can use them. Obviously, they're one of those items whose coolness is regrettably far, far greater than their actual usefulness. Or are they? The Pathfinder role-playing game Core Rulebook provides no less than nine figurines of wondrous power, ranging in price from 3,800 GP all the way to 28,500 GP. Uh, Some of them seem intended to be used for combat, others for travel, and a handful are somewhat more specialized uses. Uh, Let's take a quick look at them and see if any are worth their cost in gold. The first figurine of wondrous power is the Bronze Griffin, which you can ride in two installments of up to six hours each week. While 10,000 GP is certainly much more affordable price tag for a flying ride than you'd find on, say, a flying carpet, the economy of the griffin is a bit questionable. According to the Pathfinder Bestiary, you can purchase a young griffin for 7,000 GP. Hiring an animal trainer is relatively cheap on the kind of funds that most PCs operate with, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect to be able to purchase a well-trained adult griffin for something like 14 or 15,000 GP, and that's amount you can use all day, every day. It's true that if your real live griffin dies, it's gone forever, whereas the figurine will simply revert, but since it's only a CR4 monster anyway, you should avoid putting your griffin in combat situations, figurine or not. But you don't need to turn away from figurines of wondrous power for your flying mounts just because the bronze griffin isn't any good. The next figurine, the ebony fly, transforms into the equivalent of a pegasus, and it can do so three times per week and for ten hours each time. That's more than twice the hours you get on the griffin, and, what's more, the fly moves at a fly speed of 120 feet to the griffin's 80. Since they cost the same amount, if all you're looking for is a way to take to the skies, the fly is the clear winner, as the only advantage the griffin has on it is the fact that the fly is incapable of making attacks. As we covered previously, though, a CR4 griffin will hardly be a worthy combatant by the time you've amassed the kind of gold needed to buy one of these, so the fly is the clear victor here. The only other figure of wondrous power uh, that seems devoted solely to travel is the Obsidian Steed. The most expensive of the figurines, it costs 28,500 GP, and what's more, it can only be used once per week, albeit for up to 24 hours. The main value of the steed is that it can use plane shift, and to a lesser degree of usefulness, ethereal jaunt, at will, making it a semi-reliable means of traveling the planes, though you'll want to make sure you shift back before the 24 hours are up, lest you leave yourself stranded there. Speaking of being stranded, for some reason, there's a 10% chance that any good creature using the mount gets deposited in one of the lower planes and stranded for a week. It's a bit unclear as to whether the figurine can plane shift the whole party, or just everyone who can clamber onto its back. This figurine's a bit harder to work out, but if you can use scrolls, I'm not sure I'd get it. A scroll of plane shift can be acquired for 1,125 GP divine, or 2,275 GP arcane, meaning that you need between 13 and 25 plane shifts for the mount to pay for itself, and that assumes it never strands you anywhere. Besides, if you can get access to the spell, the mount suddenly becomes a bit useless. 
The next figurine of Wondrous Power is the Golden Lions, which can be used to create a pair of CR3 lions once per day for up to an hour at a time. At 16,500 GP, the price is steep, and though prices aren't listed for lions, uh, they're no doubt closer in price to guard dogs than they are to griffins, as outlined above. Uh, what's more, by the time you have, have 16,500 GP, a pair of CR3 monsters are unlikely to be of much use to you. Still, if you need disposable combatants, perhaps to distract or delay foes in combat, uh, the fact that the lions can keep coming back may make them worthwhile to you. Of course, any time they die, they can't be used for a whole week, which makes this figurine a bit harder to justify. A figurine with far more potential for use as a combat aid, as well as a number of other uses, is the Marble Elephant. At 17,000 GP, it costs only a little bit more than the Golden Lions, and it packs the notably more powerful punch of a CR7 creature, and a huge-sized one at that. It can only be used four times per month for up to 24 hours each time, which is technically more hours per month than the Lions, but still notably more restrictive. However, there are no special penalties if it is slain, unlike the Lions. Further, it's useful for things besides combat. In addition to making a pretty flashy mount, an elephant has a strength score of 30, which means that it can carry a full 9,600 pounds on a heavy load, making this figurine invaluable for adventurers who feel the need to take that 30-foot-tall gold statue back to town with them. But not all figurines of wondrous power are about being big and impressive. Take, for example, the humble Silver Raven, which costs a mere 3,800 GP and can be used any number of times per week to a maximum of 24 hours total. It's clear from the Raven's description what it's intended to be used for. It's essentially the same as an animal messenger spell, and the text makes it clear that it's only so good at doing anything else. You might be able to get some use out of using them as thieves, or else having them deliver grappling hooks effortlessly to the right place. They might even be useful as bomb droppers or something similar. If nothing else, they make for a fairly cheap and effective way of sending lots of messages back and forth over short distances. Just be wary about sending it on long journeys. Any trip more than 24 hours will have to wait at least a week, and it's unclear whether the Raven can reactivate itself if it has to stop halfway. Most likely it can't. If you can afford the step up in price, however, the 9,100 GP Serpentine Owl is definitely worth the price. For one thing, it can be used once per day for up to 8 hours at a time, which is going to be about half of the time you're awake and quite possibly all the time you're adventuring. It can communicate with you telepathically, making it valuable as a scout or spy. It's small and quiet, able to get to hard-to-reach places, and can silently communicate exactly what it sees to you in real time from a respectable distance. As though that weren't enough, you can also transform it into a giant owl, though if you do so more than twice, the entire thing crumbles to dust, so this ability should be used sparingly, if at all. Another solid scouter messenger in figurine form is the Onyx Dog. Uh, though it costs more than the Owl at 15,500 GP, can only be used once per week for up to six hours, is larger, can't fly, and can't communicate telepathically, it has some other benefits that are worth mentioning. For one, it has an intelligence of eight, which means that it can realistically be given rather complex commands and then be trusted to use its intelligence to handle unforeseen consequences and complications. It can also speak common, which seems less useful than telepathic communication, but on the other hand does allow it to convey messages and possibly gather information. The best special ability is probably its ability to see invisibility, greatly increasing its value as a scout. Still, considering the price and the amount that it can be used, you might be better off with the owl regardless. Finally, no discussion of figurines of wondrous power would be complete without the ivory goats. At 21,000 GP, these goats definitely provide a lot of different utility, as there are three of them, and each does something different. The goat of traveling is largely underwhelming, functioning as a heavy horse for one day each week. 
Since a heavy horse costs 200 GP, this figurine is worth something on the order of 30 GP, as it's about as good as one-seventh of a heavy horse. The Goat of Travail bears scrutiny somewhat better. Uh, it can only be used once per month, and only for up to 12 hours, but it can do a few things that the first goat can't. First of all, it functions as a Nightmare, a CR5 monster, but also gains two horn attacks that do 1 die 8 plus 4 each, which substantially increases its damage potential. Admittedly, it's still not going to be the most powerful combatant by the time you have 21,000 GP to burn, but it's not an embarrassment. Additionally, each use gets you a single plane shift, as it uses the stat block for a Nightmare, who can use plane shift once per day for itself and its rider, though if you're planning on using it for planar travel, you'll need to be careful to avoid being stranded, since you can only get it once per day. Finally, the Goat of Terror functions primarily like a timeshare of a couple of magic weapons, specifically a plus three heavy lance and a plus five longsword. It's unclear if these weapons, which are supposedly the goat's horns, are detachable or if they must be used while riding, and it's equally unclear if you get to use both or just one at a time. It also radiates a fear aura, though this has a regrettably laughable DC by the time you can actually afford the goats. On the other hand, even if the target succeeds on the saving throw, he is shaken, which might actually be of value. Sadly, the goat can only be used once per two weeks, and only for up to three hours each time. Also, characters not suited to mounted combat won't find it the most useful. In the end, the goats probably aren't worth their price, and if we're honest, most of the other figurines probably aren't either. Whether through well-minded conservatism or cruel sadism, the designers made, the mo made them more expensive in most cases than their abilities can really justify, even though everything else about them screams fun and cool. While an ebony fly is a great way to travel a lot of distance fast, it's not likely to be able to carry the whole party. You, while you probably could use it to fly ahead of the party for three days and then chill out in town and wait for them, you're going to feel really stupid when you miss all the action in the dark woods that you flew over and they come into town two levels higher than you. A marble elephant is probably less useful than a wand of floating disc, and a serpentine owl probably isn't smart enough to be able to provide the kind of useful information you would want your scout or spy to give you, like, for example, what people are saying. With all of that said, some figurines are better than others. The Owl and the Raven are both fairly cheap and decently versatile, and usable with acceptable frequency. There will always be times when you could use a sudden elephant. And if your entire party is outfitted with ebony flies, they make a great means of travel. Ultimately, though, I'd avoid the rest of them, unless your DM wants to give them to you at a notable discount for coolness factor. So, as we continue to look a little bit at the economy of certain magic items, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a look at something for fighter characters or paladins, characters without a lot of access to offensive magic on their own, and some solutions that they might have for around 3,000 GP to their problem of not being able to deal out a lot of flashy arcane-style damage. So... If you're looking for an offensive item for around 3,000 GP, your first stop is probably going to be the Beat of Force. It costs 3,000 GP, which is a nice benefit, makes things easy. Uh, it does deal 5 to 6 points of damage, it can be thrown 60 feet, and that's all creatures within a 10 foot radius. Uh, those same creatures then must succeed on a DC 16 save, uh, reflex save, or be encased in a resilient sphere. Now most of the enemies you're going to want to use the beat on will probably succeed that saving throw. Uh, and then, if they don't succeed the saving throw, they're going to end up in a sphere where nobody can hurt them anymore. So if you're looking to kill your enemies, rather than uh, temporarily slow them down until they can recover and kill you later, uh, you might consider the beat. But if you think you want to do something a little bit better, um, 
it's time to start looking elsewhere. So, the question is, can you do better than a beat of force for 3,000 GP? Yes, as long as you're willing to make that damage fire damage, uh, for the same price, you can acquire a necklace of fireball beads. Uh, it doesn't really matter what dice sizes you end up getting, uh, as at a cost of 150 GP per damage dice, you end up with 20, si uh, 20 dice 6 fire damage for the same price, 3,000 GP. Unlike the Bead of Force, these beads explode in a 20-foot radius and can deal as much as 10 dice 6 points of damage each, or as little as 2 dice 6 damage each if you just want to dispatch a lot of little guys, making them both more versatile and potentially more powerful. Uh, but can you do better than that? Uh, maybe. This is Pathfinder we're talking about here, and with the new skills expenditure system, there really isn't any reason your fighter can't be good at use magic device. Now this opens up a whole new world for him. Enter the 10 die 6 Fireball Scroll. At a price of 750 GP, well that's 12.5 times the spell's level, which is 3, times the level of the caster, 10, gives us 375 GP times 2 to get the uh, price and not the cost. Uh, that's 10 die 6 Fireball Scroll allows us to get 40 die 6 worth of fire damage for the same 3000 GP price. That's twice as much as the beads, and all you need to do is have a relevant ability score of 13, or be able to make a DC 28 uh, use magic device check to emulate an intelligence of 13. Uh, and then be able to succeed on a DC 30 use magic device check to actually use the scroll. So if, if you can do those uh, those things, then you can definitely get more bang for your buck. So it's, it's not necessarily the most reliable, but it is more powerful. But can you do better? Yes. If... And this is a big if. You can find a wand that has only partial charges. With a price of caster level times the spells level times 750, that's 22,500 for those of you keeping track at home. These wands are expensive, uh, but if you buy a used wand with only partial charges, divide by 50, get the price per charge, in this case 450 GP, you can find yourself with a wand of 10 die 6 fireballs with 6 charges. Uh, in it for a mere 2,700 gold pieces. That's 60 die 6, and I might add uh, only a DC 20 use magic device check to use the item uh, for less money than all the other options. Now understandably, not every GM allows players to purchase such wands. Uh, and as a GM, you might find that allowing your players to do things could have an effect on game balance. So you want to make sure that uh, everybody is involved in the decision with allowing partial wands in a game. Well, that's a discussion for another time. 60 die 6 for 2,700. That's the important part. Uh, now, I know by now you're, you're probably feeling that, that that's it. That's the most damage dice for 3,000 GP. The end. You can't do better. Or can you? Now, if you want to leave the world of the magical behind, you can enter the world of the mundane, where your fighter's probably more comfortable anyway. Uh, and I found out that you can get 150 doses of alchemist fire for only 3,000 GP. That's 150 die 6. More than twice the amount of the wand. Of course, they aren't actually going to be as useful as the wand if you want to, say, do enough damage to kill something quickly, or if you're going to use that damage against, you know, at least three creatures every time, then you're going to get more total damage out of the wand. But if, if you're just looking for a raw number of die 6, you really can't beat the alchemist fire. Since they light the uh, other guy on fire, if they don't take the time to put it out, they, that could be even more die sixes. Uh, 
So if you're just looking to replace a ranged attack with uh, with something that can burn, or if you're looking for something a little flashy, or you're looking to outfit a bunch of goblins who had 3,000 GP uh, to spend on a extra little item, you really can't beat the Alchemist Fire for just giving you lots of die sixes of fire damage. Fascinating. Now, it's all well and good to be a damsel and specialize in being kidnapped and rescued by dashing young knights, handsome princes, and Italian plumbers. But ultimately, you won't get far without some sort of dastardly villain or monster to kidnap you in the first place. Luckily, Paizo has recently released its third Pathfinder Bestiary, aptly named the Pathfinder Bestiary 3. We thought that this would be an excellent opportunity to take a closer look at it. Okay, to be honest, we know that's a flimsy, flimsy excuse and that... A far more appropriate title to review for Damsel Week would be something like the Cleaning and Kitchen's Core Rulebook or Complete Knitting. But we just couldn't wait to get our claws into this bestiary, so we're shoehorning it in. Something tells me we won't get any letters complaining about that choice. The first thing to bear in mind when considering the book is that it's got a lot of monsters. The book itself is 322 pages long, at least in PDF form, and most monsters get a single page. A few get a coveted second page, while a handful have to share their page with others, and these more or less cancel each other out to keep the same average of one monster per page. All told, the book contains over 300 monsters, and that's a rather impressive bestiary by anyone's standards. In fact, with two previous bestiaries already behind them, plus the various monsters included in the mini bestiaries that come with adventures from their adventure paths, you might be wondering how Paizo could manage to find so many monsters in order to fill this book, and whether or not any of these monsters could really be any good, because surely, by now, they must be scraping the bottom of the barrel, right? Well, first of all, you should know that not all of the monsters included in the book are, strictly speaking, new. I recognized several that had been printed previously in Pathfinder adventure paths I had run, or at least read. My knowledge of those adventure paths is far from encyclopedic, and I can't say just how many of the, the monsters in the book are repeats from that source, or sources, uh, but I can tell you that I noticed at least four or five, and I'm personally only familiar with about three or so of those adventures. Of course, on the plus side, if you're similarly ignorant of the bulk of Pathfinder adventure paths, then most likely you won't even notice the difference, making it an entirely moot point. You might even appreciate the fact that you don't need to track down an obscure adventure just to get stats for a carbuncle monster, for example. It's only really an issue if you tend to pick up all their published adventures anyway, and chances are if that's the case, then by now you've probably already picked the bestiary up and know more about what's, it, what's been reprinted than I do. Another way by which Paizo has been able to meet their monster quota is to draw on new sources. For the most part, fantasy games like Pathfinder draw heavily on Western European mythology and folklore for their fantasy and monstrous elements. This doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination, however, that there aren't great fantasy elements in other cultures, and Paizo is thoroughly tapping that vein in the Bestiary 3. You'll find Japanese Oni, Kami, Kappas, Hopping Vampires, and dozens of other such monsters. You'll find the Asuras of Hindu religion, the Divs, evil genies who follow the will of Ariman. Uh, the examples go on and on, and as someone who's never taken particularly great interest in Eastern mythology, I'm sure that there's a great number of monsters drawn from such cultures that I don't even recognize as well. Many players and GMs will see this as an excellent excuse to start up a Near Eastern or Far Eastern themed campaign, and this book would be a wonderful resource for that. It won't give you much insight into the actual cultures of these places, but it is an excellent listing for some of the monsters, uh, and finally having stat blocks for such creatures will no doubt be the final piece of the puzzle for a number of groups interested in such a game. This is especially true, I suspect, in regards to the Near Eastern mythologies, as the Chinese and Japanese monsters have largely been covered in the past, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, this is the most extensive look at monsters like Asuras and the Servants of Arimon. 
And of course, you don't need to be running a specifically exotic campaign in order to use these monsters. Uh, take, for example, the Kappa, a mischievous turtle-like humanoid with a bowl-like depression in its head that stores water it needs to move. While these creatures are distinctly Japanese in origin, they would fit right into one of Grimm's fairy tales and would be an excellent addition to a number of more traditional Western-themed campaigns. Still, there are plenty of people who can't help but grimace when Japanese proper names start popping up all the time, or who find Azuras to clash with their vision of medieval fantasy Europe. To be perfectly honest, I generally find myself in this camp, and I was surprised by how quickly I was won over by some of the inclusions that made the book. I can't promise your players will feel the same way, but I can say that after sitting down to read the thing cover to cover, you will certainly walk away with the impression that it has a lot of Eastern culture in it, but won't necessarily feel like that's because the book was deliberately trying to be inclusive. It almost feels natural, like Paizo was taking the most interesting monsters from a number of different cultures. Though, be aware that this also means that some of the monsters feel very strange, indeed, to someone with more Western sensibilities. Take, for example, the Pendagolin, a sort of alternative to the vampire, where the creature is normal by day, but by night its head detaches from its body and flies through the air to drink the blood of women, some of whom it transforms into a similar monster, a Maningal, uh, which operates similarly, except that their entire torso detaches when they go out for their nocturnal trips. They're cool monsters, don't get me wrong, but they reek of a very different kind of folklore than some of us are used to, and you may need to prepare for a bit of a culture shock. Speaking of strange monsters, uh, there's another way in which Paizo has managed to fill the book, and that is by finding a bunch of odd niche monsters. Uh, have you ever felt a need for a race of furry, arctic, wolf-like humanoids with 15 racial hit dice despite only being medium-sized? You've got it in the adlet. Uh, how about a race of CR5 octopus centaurs? Meet the Cicalia. Done. Need a CR1 floating jellyfish alien from another planet that's planet, not plane, that's here to offer guidance in protecting us from otherworldly aberrations? It exists now. It's called a flump. Uh, did you want a second crow-headed humanoid in addition to the Tengu? Because dire corbies in this book are exactly that. How about flying anthropomorphic bird archers at CR9? Garuda's to the rescue. Uh, the list of weird niche monsters goes on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with niche monsters. Sometimes you really do need a flying anthropomorphic bird at CR9, and if you can find one pre-made, that's a lot easier than having to advance an existing monster or strip some sort of angel or archon of all its holy powers and just leave it as a winged archer. The only problem is that for every person who will really be excited about finally getting that one stat block that will let them do that thing, there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of people who will never bother to look twice at these monsters and won't ever find occasion to use most of them. On top of that, a disturbingly large number of the monsters that are included here are difficult, for me at least, to justify their inclusion under any circumstances. Even if you accept that it's important that the game have information on a plant monster that can sprout busty green women as a sort of lure, as a designer and as a player and a DM who is capable of using the relatively simple rules for monster creation, there are two major criteria by which I rate any monster I find in a book like this. In my opinion, in order for a monster entry to be justified in a book, it should either have something unique about its mechanics or should have particularly evocative fluff. As I said, the rules for creating a monster in Pathfinder, and all of 3.5 really, are fairly straightforward. Ten hit dice of Outsider looks more or less the same whether you're making a devil, a genie, or an archon, and even if aberrations all look incredibly different, their hit dice are all the same too. Monsters draw their feats from more or less the same places, they get access to a number of special defenses and special attacks, and this is really where one monster becomes differentiated from other monsters of its type. 
But the thing is, if I can manage to put together the monster's hit dice, something that becomes pretty easy for anyone familiar with the process of character building, I can also pick out what sorts of energy or spell resistance I think it should have, and can also pick out attacks I like from the universal monster rules. Bite, grab, breath weapon. As far as I'm concerned, when you're judging the relevance of a stat block on its mechanics alone, none of these really even count as special abilities. Unless a monster has something else to justify ex its existence, and I'll get there in a minute, I expect it to have at least one special attack or quality that is not found anywhere else. If it's assembled purely from existing parts, then the stat block itself isn't really worth all that much. I could do it, and so could you. Even then, the special ability needs to be something that's actually well-designed. It should matter when your players interact with the monster, and it should be something fun, clever, or creative. Something better than what the average person off the street could have come up with. Some of the monsters in this book have really clever and interesting stat blocks with cool special abilities that are fun and exciting. Most, however, do not. A large number have no unique special abilities at all, and a good number of those that do have ones that aren't very relevant or interesting. There is more to a monster than its stat block, though, and so there are other reasons to include a monster than just because it has a good stat block. For example, if there's a niche that really needs filling, I'm less critical of the stat block because I know that it's really there to save me the trouble of actually having to build it. For example, in the Bestiary 3, there's a monster called the Cold Rider, which is a cold-themed fey knight who fights Mountain. To the best of my knowledge, and I admit that I didn't look very hard, there wasn't previously any pre-made stat block for a cold-themed knight. It's not something that's going to come up every game session, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something that I can envision actually wanting from time to time, and not necessarily wanting to have to build from scratch when I do so. So, even though there's nothing really all that special about the Cold Rider's stat block, it feels more or less appropriate for what it's supposed to be, and the thing it's supposed to be could come up often enough that its inclusion, to my mind, might be justified, whereas an octopus centaur, which I can never imagine wanting to use, might not be. Again, though, a monster's fluff, background, and ecology information is important, too. And even the weirdest, most obscure sort of monster with the least inspired stat block can be worth including if it comes with interesting enough fluff. After all, if the fluff is interesting enough to pique your interest, then you won't need to wait for the opportunity to come up where you could want to use such a monster. You already want to use it, and will do so at the next good opportunity. Of course, you'll find it difficult to do so unless the monster has a stat block, and so even if that stat block is just an instruction to use an existing monster with a couple of slight changes, or a perfectly straightforward and ordinary stat block, at least you have everything you need to use this cool fluff. Sadly, this is the place where the Bestiary's design really disappoints me. The most common thing I remember thinking to myself as I read through the book was, well, that monster sounded kind of cool, I really wish they'd had more space to talk about it. In a few cases, monsters only got two or three sentences of explanation, the rest of their page being taken up by mechanics or art. Sometimes that's fine, but other times it left me reeling. Take, for example, the Simurg, a CR-18 magical beast with the body of a particularly colorful bird and the head of a wolf or fox. Its stat block tells me that it radiates an aura of peace, that it can shoot prismatic spray from its backside, and that it shoots lasers from its eyes and can use its tail to banish outsiders. About all that the fluff section tells me, however, is that sometimes they live in the desert, keep to themselves, and can live for thousands of years. What are they? Where do they come from? What makes them interesting? And why on earth would I ever want to use one? The answer, I suspect, is that if they had had another page to devote to the Simurg, I might very well think it's the coolest monster in the book. As it is, though, it just seems like a weird waste of space, unless I happen to find myself in need of a CR-18 gargantuan rainbow bird dog on short notice. Similarly, I really liked what I read about Osiris, Divs, Demodans, and the like, and I wish that there had been more of a discussion of what they're all about, their ecology and general info. 
In essence, the fluff section is little more than an argument for why a DM should use the monster. Hey, look at these. They're cool. Here's something interesting about them. Far too many of the monsters in this book have, have to make do with insufficient support, leaving them feeling a little half-baked and the reader wondering why they bothered to include such a monster at all. But rather than rush to judgment, let me go over a handful of the monsters with you and you can get a taste for what the book is like for yourself. We'll start with a classic from an older edition, the Alep. For those of you who, like myself, weren't aware, the Alep never made the transition from the 3.5 monster manual into a Pathfinder bestiary. There are a number of monsters like this scattered throughout the book, some from the monster manual, others from later books, like monster manuals 3 and 4, or the Fiendfolio. Many, no doubt, have longer histories in previous editions that I'm not even aware of. Whatever the case, my feelings on this category of creatures in general, while there are some exceptions, is that if I haven't noticed that they weren't part of Pathfinder by now, they probably weren't worth including. While, in some cases, the monster being reborn into Pathfinder has a different array of powers or has been shifted to a higher or lower CR, in many cases this is just not the case, and the Alep is one such case. Bear in mind that, according to Paizo, the Pathfinder game is compatible with existing 3.5 material, and so it wouldn't take that much work to put a monster manual Alep, uh, monster manual Alep from 3.5 uh, into your game. You could probably just drop it in directly, even though Pathfinder handles Undead slightly differently, but in a worst-case scenario, you just need to adjust its hit dice and apply its charisma as though it were Constitution. This seems to be more or less all that Paizo has done, as the Alep here is all but identical to the Monster Manual version. The only substantial difference is that it now deals Wisdom Damage rather than Wisdom Drain. Admittedly, why a CR3 monster was ever doing Ability Drain is beyond me. I think that the book could have done just fine without the Alep and its friends such as the Dragon and the Shadow Mastiff. A monster whose stat block I do like is the Flail Snail. I'm given to understand that this is a repeat from a previous edition as well, though I've never heard of it before. The reason I love it, then, has nothing to do with any nostalgia. Rather, its special abilities simply do an amazing job of representing a giant snail, flail or otherwise. It can leave trails of sticky or slippery mucus, it can retract into its shell for a substantial armor bonus, can climb sheer surfaces through suction, and can dangle from a rope of slime. Its warp magic ability could have been more involved and dynamic, all it does is either negate or redirect the spell, but that would have required more space, and since the book is quite tight on space, I won't begrudge them that. The flail snail really stood out to me as an incredible top-down design for a giant snail, and I wish that there had been more incredible designs and it didn't stand out quite so much. Another returning monster from a time before 3rd edition is the wolf in sheep's clothing. That's right, that's its actual name. For those of you not familiar, this aberration looks like an animate tree stump, which uses the corpses of small woodland animals to attract adventurers, then lashes out with tentacles and devours them. Call me a snob if you like, but the cute little squirrel on a tree stump lure monster feels far too fourth wall shattering for me, and kills immersion, especially when it's named a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, there are a number of gems in older editions, but in my opinion, this is definitely not one of them, and I wish that Paizo had left this relic where it belongs in the past. On the other hand, I am a big fan of the Death Trap Ooze, a monster that admittedly shares some similarities with the wolf in sheep's clothing. This CR8 Ooze can assume the form of a variety of mechanical traps, like a spear trap, a swinging scythe trap, a falling block trap, or the like. While in that form, it functions identically to the trap, other than using its own attack bonus. Once it has been sprung, it returns to its own form and devours the victim. Uh, I found it to be rather clever and cool, and the mechanics of this somewhat complicated concept have been handled in a simple and elegant way. Another monster which I feel did a particularly poor job of mechanically representing its flavor was the Animal Lord template. Animal Lords also have a history in the game, in the Planescape setting, and possibly elsewhere. 
The idea of the template is that a humanoid creature, such as a human or elf, gains dominion over a certain species of animal, as well as the ability to transform into that animal and a number of powers associated with the animal. In fact, a cat lord, for instance, feel, likely feels more at home amongst cats than amongst her own kind. In the past, there was a separate animal lord entry for each type of animal, or at least each type that got showcased. What we get from Paizo here, however, is an extremely watered-down and generic template designed to cover everything from shark lords to spider lords to elephant lords. For a flat plus two CR, the animal lord gains all the attacks and special abilities of its chosen animal, takes the better of its own or the animal's ability scores at all times, takes the better of its own or the animal's natural armor, gains all the animal's racial skill bonuses, and, for some reason, DR10 over silver. They do, admittedly, get a very slight benefit based on their animal of choice, such as a plus two natural armor bonus for crocodile lords, or a plus two bonus on will saves for dinosaur lords. Uh, besides balance concerns, the template itself is basically meaningless, and even when the animal lord transforms into animal form, there is no mechanical difference. In making a template that can be applied for any type of animal, Paizo has made me question why I would want to use it for any animal. By contrast, Hungry Fog is a great general monster whose mechanics and flavor are evocative and make me actually want to use it. A sort of gaseous ooze, it isn't undead, but is often mistake for it, mistaken for it. The fact that it deals negative energy damage is a bit of a stretch, uh, but further helps reinforce its role, which is to fill graveyards and other creepy places and serve as an insubstantial and faceless menace, by allowing it to bolster undead who might restrict their, tra might restrict their travels to within the fog itself, it further evokes the feeling of, of the, the fog in, in creepy places holding the, uh, the undead and, and all of that sort of evocative imagery. Uh, it's an incredibly simple monster once you figure out what creature type it should be, and I can't help but feel like someone should have come up with this one before. Uh, while the Hungry Fog has a clear niche that many game masters will want to use at some point in their careers, I'm a bit puzzled as to why the Fawn a as a monster exists at all. Mechanically, they're essentially CR1 versions of satyrs, a monster that is already dramatically underused simply because there is little reason for most PCs to ever come into conflict with them. Fawns compound the matter, however, by being notably more peaceful, benevolent, and gentle than their slightly more powerful cousins, basically ensuring that no PC will ever have any reason to fight them. While there is some sort of fun fluff about fawns being attracted to nymphs, and a fawn NPC could conceivably need the PC's help, I will be amazed if anyone ever actually uses the fawn's stat block in such an endeavor. The monster might have been redeemed by giving information on fawn PC characters, but alas, no such, no such information was included, rendering this a basically worthless page in the book. The flaws of the fawn, however, are largely made up for by the utility of some other monsters. For example, take the Doru, one of the divs, a new race of undead genie outsiders presented in this book. The CR2 Dorus take the form of flying disembodied heads. I can already think of a dozen scenarios when I might want a flying demon head in combat without even having to fall back on the fluff of divs in general or Dorus in specific. Beyond that, though, Dorus hoard knowledge and secrets in a pathological way which, which provides exemplary role-playing opportunities as PCs might need information the Doru has or might have information it wants and either needs its services in some other way, possibly the use of its commune spell-like ability or direct exchange of information, or else have to work to protect their secret from the constant prying of the div. Further, Doru are one of several monsters in the book that can be taken as an improved familiar, allowing them to do double duty is quite possibly the coolest familiar ever. Um, <clears throat> Another excellent player-friendly monster is the Clockwork Spy. I was a bit lukewarm on the other Clockwork monsters, and to be perfectly honest, I think that the wind-up Clockwork mechanic is completely worthless. Uh, it's a mechanic that 
that only allows uh, the 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 clockwork creatures uh, can only function for one day per a certain amount of time. They I think it's per hit dice. Uh, they need to be wound up after that, uh, and that that's what clockwork is as opposed to being golem is is flavorfully they have to be wound up every few days. Um, which is going to be worthless when you throw them at PCs and will only serve to make clockwork monsters harder for DMs to use because they then have to justify why the clockwork monster in the middle of the abandoned tomb is wound up at all. Um, but the spy I like, mostly because it is a cheap and particularly fun tool for PCs to buy or make. While the other clockwork creatures can theoretically be purchased by PCs, they're far more expensive and a lot less cool. The Clockwork Spy, however, can record sound, and the fluff, at least, hints possibly video. It's fun, clever, and creative, even if the rules for playing the sound back are somewhat unclear, and it seems needlessly difficult to recover the recording without destroying it, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Finally, a step in the wrong direction, or rather a continuation from 3.5 tradition, is the inclusion of four new terrain-based giants. The Ash Giant, who lives in the Wastelands, the Cave Giant, who lives in caves, the Desert Giant, who lives in the desert, and the Jungle Giant, who lives, guess where, in the jungle. Uh, I've never understood the desire to create geographically aligned giants, especially in a game that doesn't necessarily have geographically aligned humanoids. I could, for example, understand a Desert Giant if there was a desert humanoid race, but without one, it doesn't really seem to make much sense that you just have giant Arabian men with scimitars running around. Um, whatever the case, these giants have no interesting fluff, and there's little to say about them except that they're giants who live in a specific type of climate. How exciting is that? Worse still, most of them have completely uninteresting special abilities. In this book, they tend to be, the giant can wield this type of weapon better than he normally should be able to. While the jungle giant does have some cool spell-absorbing abilities, they have nothing to do with the jungle or with being a giant, and are simply tattoos that wind up on the giant's person, and the whole package feels rather strange. Like so many monsters in the book, a handful of specific but useless giants by terrain is not likely to prove useful to anyone. Still, the book is massive, and even if there are, quite frankly, a sizable number of monsters you'll probably never use, there are also a good number of monsters that are quite usable and on par, and a glittering handful that are truly exceptional enough to go out of your way to use. Uh, any of the various outsider races could easily be the spark of an entire campaign, although you might need to put a bit of work into expanding the race, both in fluff and by adding a couple of new members to round out your CR curve. The art, as always for Paizo, is spectacular, and nearly every page has some. And while the physical copy might put a dent in your wallet at $39.99, the PDF version is a mere $9.99, which for the content is pretty amazing. After all, that's only about, what, three cents per page, give or take? At that sort of bargain barrel pricing, not all of the monsters really have to be winners, especially with the book so, so suffused with beautiful art. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Could the book have been better? Resoundingly, yes. There are a good number of monsters who cater far too much to obscure niches uh, to ever see use at most game tables. There are numerous other monsters which might have been very cool if they had been given more space for exciting fluff, or if the time had been taken to give them interesting mechanics. Almost all of those that do manage to be cool suffer for the fact that they don't have more space devoted to them. As designers and writers, I expected better of Paizo. But that's not really the point here. After all, half of those useless monsters are coming straight from the 3.5 Monster Manual or other previous books. Just because this could have been a better monster book doesn't mean that it wasn't a good monster book. Uh, if you've ever thought to yourself, wow, I really wish I had several hundred more monsters to throw at my party, and you play Pathfinder, or even regular 3.5, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't buy a digital copy. 
it's only 10 bucks. Wow. All right. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to Best Beasts, where we determine whether or not a new monster is cool. Not powerful, not flavorful, but cool. So, this week, we'll be talking about the Dryad. So, is the Dryad cool? Well, let's see. They're a race of woodland-going fairy hotties, so that gives them a pretty good base of coolness right there. Unlike certain other comely fae, uh, they don't blind everyone who decides to look at them, so they're more down-to-earth than their rivals in that category, so that makes them cool. Um, sure, uh, they're a little bit into the woods. Uh, they like the trees, and they desperately protect them, and sure, they never really leave them, but, you know, right now it's, it's cool to be into the environment, so uh, more cool points there. Now, uh, finally, the, they do have the ability to just meld into trees, and I, I'd just like to point out that, that that's cool, just in a vacuum. Uh, and then perhaps the coolest thing about the Dryad is that if you're talking to one and she's bugging you and she's nagging about her friends or whatever, you can just leave and she can't do anything about it. Uh, maybe that's not cool about her specifically, but it is a cool thing about Dryads that you can just sort of head out. Now, some people unfortunately have other opinions about the Dryad. The problem with Dryads, like Medusas, and a vast majority of similar fantasy monsters, is that, on the one hand, uh, they're designed to be highly sexual and erotic figures, but on the other hand, they're kind of gross and disgusting. Obviously, not all Dryads have bark for skin, or otherwise appear to be made out of wood, like the one from the Monster Manual, but how many does it take, really? Uh, and no matter what you do, at the end of the day, if you give in to temptation and hook up with a dryad, you won't be able to complain as all of your friends and fellow adventurers give you crap for sleeping with trees, because in a very real way, it will be true. But, even setting aside the fact that dryads, despite being approached as romantic and sexual figures, are more or less the equivalent of getting it on with a knothole, they just aren't very pleasant people, either. It seems like every time you encounter a dryad in fantasy media, she needs the help of some brave, strong adventurer to save her stupid tree. It's always loggers this and blight that, and oh, woe is me, I can't leave the tree I'm bound to. On the one hand, I suppose it's nice that if you get sick of her incessant whining and wheedling, you can up and leave, and she won't be able to follow. But on the other hand, few dryads seem to be above using mind control magic to make you do what they want when their more mundane manipulation fails. And that's the problem with Dryads. They're not mobile enough to be adventurers, really, and their mindset rarely puts them in the role of villains. They pretty much always either fall in as damsels in distress, or very occasionally as benefactors, and are always designed to be a love interest. But you can't have a relationship with them, at least not unless you want to go out and live alone in the woods. So ultimately, they're boiled down to a cheap one-night stand, and any adventurer worth his salt can find a dozen lusty barmaids in any tavern without having to trek out to the middle of nowhere and risk getting splinters in his sensitive areas. So, now that we've both had our say, what is our ultimate opinion on Dryads? Are they cool, or are they not? Well, as a monster, and being a monster, the Dryad just doesn't really live up. I mean, it's never going to be scary, and it's never going to really be all that good. Now, a Dryad can make a good villain, if you're really willing to work at it. Uh, generally, they're designed to sort of be, oh, hey, look at me, fairies who either give the PCs quests, like save my tree from loggers, or just to distract rather, um, shall we say, excited PCs so that uh, they can get off track or whatever and they're all tempting. But 
when you're willing to put the work in and make them interesting, they can make good villains. Uh, so that they're kind of on the okay end of the cool spectrum. And then, as uh, as d- despite all of the crap that I gave them about uh, about being uh, poor love interests, uh, when you get right down to it, when when they are being there to be damsels in distress, or when they are being there to be the the lady of the woods who who gives your PCs whatever it is that they need. Um, you know, used sparingly, dryads are, are going to have a little bit more exoticness to them. They're going to be a little more fun and exciting than if it's always the princess or, or whatever. It's nice to mix it up a little bit, and, and sometimes making your uh, making your damsel a dryad can make things a little bit more interesting. You have to be careful not to overuse it, though, because having it always be the dryad is, is just as boring as having it always be the princess. So, long story short, with dryads... They make a nice change of pace. So now we're going to be going ahead and moving on to that part of the podcast about damsels in distress, if you'll remember from the beginning, with our top ten countdown for our DM advice. And uh, we're going to be looking at ten cool damsel in distress uh, situations. So, number one, the uh, damsel is an heiress to the crown of a minor border kingdom and is being held, with her consent, in an asylum by a wicked cleric, Havramal, who has convinced her, with his illusion magic and his silver tongue, that she is mad, and that her life is ruled by her own delusions, and that only he can help her. Her father, who was convinced by Havramal that his daughter might be sick, agreed to let, him stay, or to let her stay with him in his estate, but is now growing suspicious of the priest's motivations. Number two. The damsel, imprisoned for five years in the stone tower, became alarmed as the structure began sinking into the earth. Fearful for her life, she left the room for the first time in years, only to be greeted by the sight of the tower's guardians and her captors' dead bodies. The door still locked and the tower's windows still barred. She recovered a spellbook hidden away by her captor and has been desperately sending messages out to anyone who she thinks can help before her tower and her life is swallowed by the earth. Number three, the damsel was captured by a wicked kraken sorcerer who imprisoned her beneath the waves in a bubble of air. Each day, the bubble shrinks a little bit, and within one month, the damsel will surely drown unless the kraken has paid a ransom of 100,000 gold pieces. Making known his plan to every hero and king in the immediate area, heroes are questing about for any treasure in order to free the fair maiden. The dam- Number four, the damsel is captured by the dragon Thrasarex last year, and has been living in his lair with him ever since. She's, in the intervening time, fallen in love with the dragon, and has sent her father word that she intends to marry the beast. Soon after, her father returned word that he would be sending a group of knights to slay the dragon and retrieve her. Uh, Fearful that Thrasarex will believe that she requested the men-at-arms, the damsel sends an offer of a great reward in dragon's gold to any hero brave enough to waylay the knights and preserve true love. Number five, the damsel is a famous lyrist and was captured by a former suitor, hateful of her and jealous of her husband-to-be. She's bound to a chair and forced to watch as whirling blades advance slowly towards her fiancé's neck. Only the sound of her music can slow the blade's progress, but she must eat or sleep sometime. Uh, when she's held up eight days so far, she finds her strength is beginning to wane, and if something is, isn't done soon, he will surely die. 
number six. The damsel was captured by a wicked druid and taken to his cave, where he polymorphed her into a wolf. When confronted by heroes, he explains that one of his wolfen defenders is actually the maiden they were sent to rescue. Enraged by evil magic, she fights fiercely. And to date, none have survived the wolves to slay the druid and rescue the damsel. Number seven. Everyone awakens one day to find the damsel is turned into stone her, in her bed. A note or some other message tells them that an evil warlock has petrified her and will only restore her if his demands are met. These could be gold or really just whatever your sadistic mind can come up with. Any attempts to return her to normal fail. No magic, stone to flesh, only creates a vaguely human-shaped fleshy blob. When the villain is finally confronted or his demands are conceded to, he will reveal that the maiden was, in fact, just kidnapped, and that he had left a stone statue in her likeness to throw off pursuers. Clever one, that warlock. Number eight. The damsel is incorporated into the heart of a colossal and powerful construct. She could have been chosen for this specifically because she was pure of heart, or had some other feature that made her an ideal component for the construct's magical engine, or she might have been chosen for some sort of personal vendetta, or she might have just been the nearest person to use. Whatever the case, the PCs need to find a way to stop the golem without killing her, and without themselves being killed by the golem. Number 9. The Damsel, a pure-hearted priestess or cleric of a good deity, has been purposefully infected with lycanthropy and locked in a cage with an innocent. It might be orphans. It might be someone she's particularly close to. Whatever the case, it's the full moon tonight, and it will be her first transformation. If she isn't rescued before the moon rises, she'll transform and commit bloody murder, losing her spiritual purity. And someone else is going to die horribly too. Double reason for the rescue. Number 10. There are two damsels, or other captives, you could use something else if you wanted I suppose, dangling from separate cages on a complex contraption above lava, acid, spikes, whatever you want, similar destructive substance. Uh, the controls for the contraption are such that if either cage is raised to where the PCs can free the captive, the other will be lowered all the way to their death, forcing the PCs to find a way around the terrible choice. Meanwhile, the entire thing is slowly sinking, so that if they don't make some kind of decision, they won't be able to save either of them. And that was Game Mastery. And now, for our final segment for the day, we're going to go ahead and start Seed to Story where we are going to roll a die percent and consult the 100 Adventure Ideas table from the 3.0 Dungeon Master's Guide, and then we're going to expand on it right here in front of you and see if we can come up with a, a good beginning for an adventure. So, without any further ado, 38. What is 38 going to give us, Josh? A map showing the location of an ancient magic forge is discovered. Now, it is Damsel Week, so our goal here, in part, is to find a way to work damsels into that. Um, so, obviously, that may be a bit of a challenge. We've got, we've got a map going to a magic forge. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's not a literal map. Maybe the map is, uh, is something, something to do with the, with the damsel. Maybe, maybe she reacts to some sort of stone or artifact and like a glowing map sort of thing appears. She's the key to, to something. It's, it's a little cliche, but, uh, but what do you think about that? Well, that's an idea. I definitely like making the, uh, the map related to the damsel in some fashion. Personally, uh, I think that perhaps uh, the map could be a separate physical entity and uh, we could take the rather simple approach that the damsel is being 
held and the map is looking to uh, to be exchanged as a ransom. One uh, one last thing I want to throw out there before we go with that, <laughs> it, it it is a magic forge. Um, what about uh, what what if what if maybe the uh, what if maybe it's a magic forge that's going to allow the uh, the evil warlock or whatever to bring back his uh, to to forge some sort of um, artificial version of his lost love or something like that. Well, we could definitely uh, we could definitely look at something like that for sure. Um, that kind of motivation is uh, is really strong. Perhaps that the uh, the evil warlock does need a damsel himself in order to reincarnate into his artificial wife. Oh yeah, that's that's always a nice one. Yeah, let let's go with that. So uh, so we've got some sort of some sort of magic forge. Uh, it's going to let going to let them going to let this warlock uh, bring back his. Uh, Bring back his his dead wife into the body of uh, of some young maiden, uh, much to her displeasure, I'm sure. Uh, so, obviously, from here it seems relatively straightforward. Obviously, the uh, the damsel herself will uh, is is probably already kidnapped, and so the the PCs perhaps um, either the PCs need to start by finding their own map in order to get ahead of the wizard, or uh, they may already know, and then then it's it becomes a race to get to the forge first. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, it seems to pretty much end up breaking down that way. Um, however, it is possible that maybe the uh, the magical forge could have another use that the PCs might need to might need to work with some other reason that they might want to go there. And uh, it's possible that maybe the uh, the warlock is not got such bad. Maybe it's not going to kill the maiden. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's all of that. But okay, so ultimately, maiden or no maiden, uh, we've got a forge. We've got a race to get there before the bad guy. Um, so, as far as a way to turn that into an adventure, and and this starts to look more like a more like a campaign. But so obviously we have we have some sort of uh, forge. It's hidden somewhere, uh, most likely. Uh, there's going to be, it's not going to be easily accessible, so we're going to need, uh, it may be deeply underground, or it may be in some sort of other particularly hostile wilderness area, which seems a little weird for a forge, so it's probably buried somewhere, uh, and they're going to need to go through a, a series of dungeons to get there. Perhaps, perhaps in addition to the map, maybe the, uh, maybe the bad guy has some sort of, uh, I mean, if he's an evil warlock, maybe he can just teleport right there, and that gives him a, a head start, and while the PCs rush through the dungeon, uh, he's already down there trying to work out the, uh, the, the forge and get it back up and running. Yeah, uh, he could definitely be there. He could be sending minions to slow down the PCs who are now coming up. But a thought has actually stricken me. What if he's got the map and he's got the maiden kidnapped, but uh, but perhaps the uh, the forge, which is hidden away, needs a key to get into? Maybe something the PCs could have that he wants from them that they need to desperately hold on to. Adds a sort of extra layer to the, uh, to the adventure that's not just going to be... So the PCs need to get there before he completes his ritual at the end of the month. Well, the uh, the one issue with that then becomes that uh, unless there's a particular reason why he needs that specific damsel, uh, the adventure becomes quickly solved as the PCs bargain to trade the uh, the key for the damsel, and he can pick up some barmaid somewhere. But yeah, that's that's also good. Um, so I think uh, obviously then you you mostly um, if 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 we take the more uh, the the more proactive approach where the 
the villain is attacking the PCs, then then you have numerous assassination or theft attempts that the PCs need to ward off, all the while uh, probably trying to figure out where the villain is, is acting from and why they're being attacked. And once they once they solve that mystery by, by whatever clues you decide to give them, perhaps uh, something that a dying assassin says leads them to believe, leads them to find out what the key that the key is why they're being attacked, and then they go from there to the library to, to research the key, and they find out what's going on, and then they need to research who would really care about that, and so on and so forth. Um, alternatively, going the other way where it's a strict race through the dungeon, all you really need is a dungeon. Most likely, if we have a buried underground forge that's magical, this strikes me as uh, dwarvish, uh, so perhaps some sort of abandoned... Uh, dwarven settlement where they dug too deep or alternatively uh orcs broke in orcs are always stealing uh dwarven mines i'm given to understand it's it's something that they do so that uh that would basically be how that would break down um so now that we've got that out of the way and you've got your uh you've got your story for the week it is time sadly for us to close uh those of you who were expecting to see more of the uh the short story from last week uh, be patient. We'll, uh, we'll hopefully have it for you next week. In the meantime, it is time for the poll of the week. Uh, this week's poll of the week is, what is your favorite fantasy mount? Are you a fan of the tried-and-true horse, or do you prefer something a little more fanciful? Pegasi, giant scorpions, maybe you pull a page from Harry Potter and write a hippogriff, or maybe, for you, there's no mount besides the majestic dragon. Drop by our forums or send us an email and let us know. And with that, we are done for this week. Thank you very much for listening in to the Necromancers of the Northwest podcast, and See you next week.